Welcome to an audio stream from San Marino Community Church, featuring our own pastoral staff and various guest speakers. I invite you to listen for God's Word. For this reason, since the day we heard it, we have not ceased praying for you and asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of God's will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding so that you may lead lives worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, as you bear fruit in every good work and as you grow in the knowledge of God. May you be made strong with all the strength that comes from his glorious power. And may you be prepared to endure everything with patience, while joyfully giving thanks to the Father who has enabled you to share in the inheritance of the saints in the light. He's rescued us, from the power of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. I don't know if you're aware that uh, an annual event is coming up next weekend. It's called the Huntington Ball. And uh, the Huntington Ball is an event that they host on the Huntington Library grounds It's a fundraising event, so it's an expensive kind of event to attend. Uh, It's black tie, so everybody's in tuxedos and gowns and significant jewelry. And uh, and you go to the the ball. Uh, My wife and I have had occasion because of friends and members of the church who've invited us through the years, so on several occasions we've had a chance to attend. Several years ago, we were in attendance at the ball. And by the way, uh, I, I actually never had to own a tuxedo until I moved to California. <laughs> and, you know, most people in the rest of the country don't believe that because they think California is all about the beach culture. But it's much more complicated than that. So we were at the Huntington Ball a couple of years ago, and we gotten through the cocktail reception where you kind of schmooze and you kind of make your way to the table. And... Um, I was seated next to a woman who's a little older than I am, probably old enough to be my mother, uh, a a widow who had lost her husband some years before, and we exchanged greetings and the usual pleasantries at the table, and I sat down. Uh, There were flowers on the centerpiece of the table, so it was kind of hard to talk to people over the table. You know what that's like when you've been at those events, so I turned to one side and there was a conversation going on over here, so it was kind of me and this woman who were left to converse with one another. So we began to have some conversation and we talked about people we knew in common and we sort of focused on the Huntington and its many programs that are wonderful for the community and the things we liked best and making small talk essentially. And before long, that kind of led to more significant conversation about life, and we were soon talking as if we were old friends. And then she confessed to me that when she had learned that she was going to be sitting next to a minister, she had no idea what she was going to talk about, and it created some real anxiety for her. I mean, you know, what kind of a minister is he after all? You know, is he going to try and save me? Uh, is he going to try and get me to go to his church? Uh, is this like a used car salesman in religion? Um, am I going to criticize her values or the way she's living her life? 
So it's, it's interesting that people have this caricature of people in ministry, people who are super religious and what they're like. We're kind of like the morality police, you know? And I think she thought I was going to pull up to her and say, okay, lady, you've been speeding on the moral highway. You've exceeded the speed limit. I've got to write you a ticket. Um, she just didn't know how to respond and was pleasantly surprised. And the best compliment she could pay me was, you're just like real people. (laughs) I don't know what she expected. But people have funny ideas about people who take faith seriously. When I was a young man in high school, uh, I was just learning about this faith. It had, uh, I'd grown up in the church and I'd sort of discovered some things, but then all of a sudden it was accelerated in my high school years in a remarkable way where all of a sudden I realized this is the best thing I've ever heard of. So I was trying to discover what this faith was about and I was trying to read the Bible and it didn't make a lot of sense to me and I was in some small groups And soon, my best friend, who's a few years older than I was, was in seminary at the time. And he and I were at my house one spring day uh, in Minnesota. That matters because we were out on the porch, and you're not on the porch in the winter, you know. So we're on the porch, and these two guys come walking up, and they've got white shirts and ties and knock on the door. They're from Jehovah's Witness. And I'm an enthusiastic young believer, and I'm interested in finding out more and talking to people who know the Bible. And so we sit down with these two guys and start talking with them. And then we discover they really have an agenda. Now, maybe that's the kind of thing that the woman was afraid of, you know? Uh, So we had this conversation about faith and about life and about what matters to God and what should matter to us. And um, then they began to try and sort of lay their agenda on us uh, to convince us that they were the ones who really had the truth and we were, uh, we were close but not quite on target. And, uh, and then a lot of biblical texts referenced back and forth and one thing or another and they were trying to convince us about a variety of religious things that we needed to embrace. And finally, my friend, who was attending a Lutheran seminary, and for Lutherans, justification by faith alone is the ringing chant of the Reformation. And he turned to them and he said, well, you work out your salvation. I'll depend upon Christ for mine. And they turned to another verse of scripture and they came and you work out your salvation. I'll depend upon Christ for mine. The conversation was over, and they left. And I was a young person in high school trying to figure out, what is faith and how do we understand it? That comes pretty darn close to what Paul is saying in Colossians. To this young church that has been visited by a bunch of super religious people, trying to convince them that they need to pay special attention to certain days of the week or the month or the year, that they need to worship in a certain way and become super religious people. And they're kind of being influenced by all of this. And Paul is saying, no. You work out your salvation. We depend upon Christ for ours. 
The Apostle Paul makes that claim in Colossians. The problem with the Colossians was not that their faith and lives had no substance, but rather than focusing on the sufficiency of Christ, they were all tied up in knots over rules and regulations and ascetic practices that made them look really religious, but actually undermined their faith. There's a kind of religion that looks, well, religious. But in reality, it's a self-improvement program that has none of the power of God in it and none of the presence of the Holy Spirit. And the Colossians didn't fully comprehend or appreciate who Jesus Christ really is and what that means for human life. How could you tell that that was the case? Well, they were all worried about their religious life. They were all twisted up with do's and don'ts and uncertain about their lives, easily influenced by any speaker that came to town with a new self-improvement program. Later in, the apostle, later in this letter, the Apostle Paul will write, Why do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. All these regulations refer to things that perish with use. They're simply human commands and teachings. In other words, all this stuff is only of secondary importance and it doesn't matter in the end. There's a kind of religion that looks very serious and demanding, but it actually produces very little. And it's characterized by self-imposed restraints, pietistic rules, with little of the freedoms that Christ has come to bring us. And the key is to balancing your life with Christ at the center of it. And real faith produces a gratitude for life and a generosity with it. See, there's two classic movements theologically that go on. I didn't know the language for this in high school, but I've learned later. One was justification and the other is sanctification. Justification by faith alone, that ringing chant of the Reformation, means Christ has already completed already accomplished the work of justification on the cross. That's why Paul will write in the next chapter, when you were dead in trespasses, God made you alive together with Christ. When he forgave us all our trespasses, erasing the record that stood against us with all its legal demands, he set this aside, nailing it to the cross. End quote. Already done. Faith is coming to life again with the borrowed life of Christ in us. It's not about looking religious. And of course, Paul knew how to look religious. He was a super religious guy. He had it down. He was the best. Elsewhere in Philippians, he writes, it's all rubbish compared to what I know now. This coming to life again. In Christ. It's amazing. That's justification. When you know justification, life takes on new meaning, new life, new energy, new generosity, new gratitude. But there's also sanctification that follows. John Calvin, writing about sanctification in his Institutes of the Christian Religion, 
talks about Christian freedom. And I love the line. Clearly, we're not coming to life again simply to return to our former ways. The kind of behaviors that we've known sometimes in life that are an embarrassment to us and we're ashamed of the way we've acted. There are some guidelines for us in how we should behave and how we should live out our lives. The Ten Commandments, pretty good guidelines for how we should live. We should be done with drunkenness and we should be done with lying and we should be done with using other people to meet our own needs. And we can get we can let go of all that sort of self-destructive stuff that keeps us tied in knots ourselves. Let go of that self-condemnation that we often live with that we're not good enough. That if people really knew who we are, if they really knew what we think about and what goes on inside of us, they wouldn't love us. They couldn't love us. How could God? Because God knows all that stuff. Well, I think Paul would say that's useless rubbish. We need strength within us to battle against all that self-destructive stuff that we tell ourselves. And thanks be to God, there's help right where we need it. There's freedom now to live differently without that sort of damning self-talk that we all seem to participate in in our own heads John Calvin describes it as the freedom to be indifferent to things that are indifferent I can remember conversations early in my life what kind of car should we drive as a Christian you know can you drive a BMW I mean is that all right was God okay with that uh should I buy a Lexus or a Chevy what would God prefer You'll drive yourself absolutely nuts trying to weigh every decision you make in terms of whether it leads to your salvation or not. Do whatever gives you peace. People often wonder about like stewardship. How much should I give to the church? You know, is this enough? Is it, you know? And I like to just respond, do what gives you peace. Give until you're at peace. That's your guide. You shouldn't beat yourself up all the time about whether you're doing enough, not enough. I mean, we do that constantly. Okay, maybe the $250,000 Lamborghini is not necessary. But does that mean you have to drive a Prius? Because that's what God really wants. I mean, look, there are good reasons to drive a Prius. Don't get me wrong. I mean, there's, we should be concerned about the environment the natural world, I, you know, there's, that's a different conversation. But not, you shouldn't drive a car because it's going to prove your worth. It won't. And you can't prove your worth. Neither can I. That's the beauty of the gospel, is that our worth is a gift A gift from God. And man, when you get a hold of that idea, it changes the way you live. 
It's called freedom from all that self-condemnation that we live with. And by the way, neither the Lamborghini nor the Prius are going to give you any life. Because it's not what's outside you that gives you life. It's what's inside you. So if sanctification allows us this freedom to be indifferent to things that are indifferent, secondary, what does sanctification look like in human life? If it isn't religious good works, what is it? Well, Paul defines that later in the same letter. He says, as God's chosen ones then, holy and beloved, clothe yourselves with compassion and kindness and humility and meekness and patience. Bear with one another. And if anyone has a complaint against another, forgive each other, just as the Lord has forgiven you. You also must forgive. And above all, clothe yourselves with love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony, and let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. That's sanctification. That's what begins to emerge when you've had this genuine encounter with Christ. A few years ago, I was flying a kite with my grandson. We were up in Santa Inez, and uh, it was a Ninja Turtle kite. had a double long tail. Uh, he was probably about four years old at the time. He loved launching it, so he, I would hold the string, and he would run until it took off. And then he would run back to me and grab the string, and we would let it out as far as it would go, but he really enjoyed rolling it back in and seeing the thing come back to earth. And then he'd run out again and launch it. It was so much fun. There's uh, To fly a kite properly, you need a few things. You need good aerodynamics. Uh, you need a good tail. You need some wind. But most importantly, to fly a kite, you need somebody who's holding intention at the center of the kite, the string. Without that, the kite will fly off and crash and burn somewhere, come unceremoniously down to earth. But with that tension, it takes off and it gains flight. To soar, our lives need something at the center that's holding it. That's Christ. That's the point Paul is making. And if you shift the center to some other religious behavior or activity, you've missed the point. Christ is sufficient to hold our lives together. In fact, he goes on in the very next paragraph in Colossians to paint this remarkable picture of Christ, not only holding our lives together, but holding the universe together. All things find their perfection and fulfillment in him, he goes on to say. Now, I know there are real struggles and difficult decisions and painful realities that we deal with in life. But in faith, there's this insight. In Christ, Christ is before all things and in whom all things hold together.
including our lives. The various aspects of our lives find completion and fulfillment in Him. Our personalities, our emotional lives, our spirits, our relational lives, our marriages and our family life, our work life, our congregations, our communities, our political, even our economic lives held together by the Lord of life. No aspect of life is beyond God's concern. No dimension of life is unaffected by faith. And the secret is this, Christ in you, holding life together. So this mighty weight gets lifted off of our shoulders. Nothing in particular may have changed in my circumstances in life, but I become different in the midst of those circumstances. You know, parenthetically, we've just witnessed two funerals, memorial services this week of two great Americans, Aretha Franklin and John McCain. And out of John McCain's story comes this remarkable piece about his internment in the Hanoi Hilton and what it forged in him in the midst of those circumstances. An example of what can happen when you commit yourself to those things that are of eternal significance and value, even in the midst of horrific circumstances. A mighty weight can be lifted from our shoulders You don't need to become super religious. You don't need to become everything everybody thinks you should be. You'll drive yourself crazy trying to be everything everyone else thinks you should be. Just tell them, look, you work out your salvation. I'll depend upon Christ for mine. And then begin the journey of sanctification clothing yourself with compassion and kindness, humility, meekness, patience, and above all, clothe yourselves with love, for it binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your heart. Paul puts it this way elsewhere. You're called to freedom, brothers and sisters. Only don't use your freedom as an excuse or an opportunity for self-indulgence, but through love become slaves to one another. For the whole law is summed up in the single commandment, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Justification, freedom from religiosity, and sanctification, a lifelong process of becoming more and more Christ-like, Loving others rather than living a life of self-indulgence that leaves us empty. And so may you be made strong with the strength that comes from his glorious power. And may you be prepared to endure everything with patience while joyfully giving thanks to the Father. Let us pray together. 
Gracious and loving God, we do thank you that the gift of your son is a gift of immense joy and freedom. We thank you, O God, that you can lift the burden from our shoulders of all the self-condemnation that we tell ourselves and that you can give us a new freedom and new and renewed life from within. Dear God, help us not to miss this life. Help us not to focus wrongly on religious behavior. Help us to receive what it is you have for us, justification and the journey of becoming more and more like you. We pray all of this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen.